Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Political Party Podcast. This one featuring the leader of the Liberal Democrats, Tim Farron. And I think it's fair to say one of the more uh, raucous nights that we've had at the St James Theatre. As you would imagine, uh, Tim was funny, upbeat, circumspect, self-deprecating, just wonderful company. And as well as that... Um, as you would also expect a man of great depth, and it was good to talk to him about faith and about politics and his founding principles and what first led him uh, to the Liberal Democrats. So it's a wide-ranging discussion. It's very funny, and there's definitely a few surprises in there, so uh, do enjoy. Oh, wow. Good evening. Hello. Oh, what an amazing audience. Phenomenal. Good evening. Hello, 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 everyone. Wow, I think that's the best reception I've ever had. Uh, please give a massive round of applause to Tim, our new Toastmaster this evening. <laughs> on the, uh... That's Tim from Avalon, not Tim Farron in a new role. Although, I suppose it depends how tonight goes, really, doesn't it, Tim? But, uh... <laughs> so, it's fantastic. Uh, give me a cheer if you've been here before. Yeah. Excellent. Welcome back, regulars. Give me a cheer if this is your first time. Yeah. Excellent, plenty of newbies as well. Thank you very much for coming. This is the last, well, it's the last one here we'll do before the referendum, but more on that later. Um, I hope you will enjoy the EU referendum campaign. Um, and I hope that most people are going to vote, but we'll just do a quick opinion poll. Uh, give me a chance, you're definitely going to vote in the referendum. Yay! Excellent, fantastic. Uh, uh, and then of that group, uh, well, firstly, actually, give me a chance, you're not going to vote. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> one guy. Well, you've taken part in that poll, perhaps it'll lead to more. Uh, why aren't you going to vote? Is it because you're ineligible? Yeah. And on what basis are you ineligible? I'm a tourist. You're a tourist? Yeah. Right, so, and if you could vote... Well, it depends where you're from, I suppose, doesn't it? Whereabouts are you a tourist from? Canada. Canada, excellent. So this is sort of referendums of things that you're vaguely versed in. Do you think Britain should stay in the EU or leave? Might have to leave a bit quicker than that by the sounds things. <laughs> Isolate yourself very quickly. Uh, but for everyone else, uh, give me a chance if you're going to vote to stay in the EU. Yeah! I give you a chance if you're going to vote to leave. Yeah! Okay, a few hardy souls, excellent. And give me a chance if you really want to know which way Hitler would have voted. <laughs> Seems to be the defining issue in this referendum. I couldn't believe it the day after the last one. Fucking Ken went Hitler crazy. So a fucking gift. I can't believe it. And then. Talked about Hitler for what must have been a good fortnight on TV, and then Boris started talking about Hitler and everyone in the crowd. But just every time I turned on the TV, I thought I was going to turn on loose women. They go, oh, well, coming up after the break, Ken Livingston's going to be talking this very sock draw. I just think Hitler would have got rid of most of him. <laughs> <laughs> fucking everywhere he went, he was going fucking Hitler crazy, Ken. But um, welcome to the show. Um, I don't know if anyone's planning to go to the big Brexit rally. Uh, in a few weeks. This is the one where it's a big uh, pop concert uh, arranged by Leave.eu and uh, Alicia Dixon was meant to be performing, uh, but she's pulled out. Um, <laughs> five were meant to be performing, uh, but they've pulled out. And apparently E17 are now the only people left. Um, I just can't wait to see the reaction as you're a sceptic when they sing their number one hit, Stay Another Day. <laughs> Seems to be an oversight on the uh, uh, the organisers' uh, point. I have to say as well, part of this referendum campaign has been dredging up Hitler and all this sort of shit. But as well, Gordon Brown coming back to... I mean, he must just sit by the phone waiting for referendums. (laughs) Well, there's another one, yeah, I'll make a speech. And it's just the the way that he sort of pace... Have you never seen a man pace his day? And his sentences never end. 
and it's the it's the the British way that makes us insist that no child is left behind, that everyone should have a fair chance, rich or poor, old or young, no matter what part of the UK people are from. It is indeed those British values that we cherish as citizens, not just in the UK but as Europeans as well, that makes us face outwards and not inwards to the rich. You could tune in at any point. Like, I don't know if anyone saw that documentary about wild animals that are kept in cages in Russia. <laughs> it's sort of like a lynx being kept at the bit. I mean, this is a golden brown that was illegally fur farmed. We just kept him in a. And as lynx as it, mixes and says that if we ever get out of this cage, we will roam free. It's our destiny, not only as felines, but as mixes. It's just a constant fucking. Now, Switzerland have loads of referendums. I bet we are there next week. They have referendums on all sorts of things in Sweden. I think they had a referendum on water filtration. <laughs> Fucking get Gordon out there. As consumers of water, whether we're Swiss, whether we're European, whether we like it bottled or not, fizzy or still, these are the values, these are the ones. I think I've milked that a little bit too much than he has. But, uh, of course, all the uh, campaigners now, they're taken to various different platforms and Osborne and um, Cameron were in B&Q this week. And they love an industrial setting anyway, don't they, the Tories? But they were specifically in B&Q because they've got this new phrase that if we leave the EU and it causes an economic shock, it will be the first DIY recession <laughs> in history, right? So they get all the staff together at this big B&Q and then Cameron, most of them look bored. <laughs> it's sort of like at school where you can either go to maths or do maths and people go, well, I'll go to maths because it's obviously better than learning. <laughs> They're not really bothered about it. They're all sort of sat there aboard these B&Q workers and Osborne and Cameron are doing this sort of like double act. And they said, uh, and we're here today. Look, the whole point actually of being here at B&Q is, is a serious point. We're saying, look, this would be the first ever DIY recession. And he sort of pauses for a laugh. Doesn't get one. <laughs> he sort of carries on. He thinks, mate, firstly, then they said, any questions from the audience? And I would have loved at least one person to go... Yeah, I've got a question for you, Prime Minister. And what sort of warranty can I get on a DeWalt cordless combi drill? <laughs> no one did. Um, but then you think you can't just go to various different outlets to promote these ridiculous... You can't just turn up at Greg's and go, what we're saying is the European Union can't have its cake and eat it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, look, we're at Wembley to make the very serious point uh, that, that we don't want this referendum to go into extra time. And, uh, you know, at the end of the world, we're... Well, this is a real own goal by the end of the... And look, we're here in Ann Summers, to, uh, Ann Summers today to say no backdoor immigration. <laughs> I, think, I think that makes the point. Uh, the, the party political broadcasts of both campaigns right now is all stronger in and vote leave. And the emails. Do people sign up to the emails that you get from these? Has anyone signed up to the stronger in emails? Yeah. <laughs> what lost football fan at the back? Uh, hope you enjoyed the cup final. It was... Uh, it's just a very odd tone that they take. It's all that personal stuff. They say, hey, Matt, I knew party political broadcasts out tonight, but we wanted you to see it first. <laughs> no one is fooled by that, are they? They think, oh, my God, Jack Straw's kid wants me to be the first <laughs> sat at home. I've got a boner. I'm eating spaghetti hoops. Why have I been... <laughs> True, any night of the week. Why, why have I been chosen to be the first? I think, oh, I'm special. I'll, I'll watch this. And the next line in the email is, the star of the show is Sam. He's 14 months old. We'd like you to meet him first. That's not my cup of tea, mate. <laughs> sort of tone of email you think I'm into. Gone too far. And then they show you this, this patron, the most patronised. What I don't understand is, in Alfred in Scotland, why the people that represent 
the majority can't communicate with the majority of people is a real tragic irony in, in politics. And the, the whole thing's very patronising. This is Sam. He's 14 months old. Sam, by the way, has a lovely big garden. Doesn't look like leaving the EU will make a difference to this little fucker's life. One way or the other. <laughs> Why don't you vote for Sam's future? Sam's already got a fucking better future than I've already got. He's getting TV work for stars. I don't give a shit. He's <laughs> a fucking ad camper. Fucking poster boy for the EU because there's a bit in it where they go, the EU has delivered so many things, rights at work, and then they show the classic scenes of like people in a meeting laughing and <laughs> chefs just tossing up bean sprouts going, <laughs> I've never worked anywhere like that. So the EU reflection rights at work, even someone going, That bitch, I swear to God, she stole my presentation. I know how she fucking did it. But you're only laughing because you're shagging her, mate. I don't know what your problem is. But we'll come on to the SMP in about five minutes. <laughs> My favourite sex scandal of all time. <laughs> Two MPs having affairs with the same woman. But what's great is Stuart Hosey's the deputy leader. Resigned as deputy leader, and he started high blood pressure that he said had affected him on specifically three occasions. I think, was that all you got? <laughs> Just the three, Stuart. Um, Angus McNeil was the other uh, SNP MP involved. He previously actually had romped uh, with two teenagers at a Cayley in Shetland. <laughs> That's a really wonderful sentence to say, actually. Romped with two teenagers. And, but apparently he said it was restricted to... There, there were 17 and 18, uh, the two girls at this Cayley with Angus McNeil. And he said that uh, all it had done was, was kissing and heavy petting. Uh, now, Simon Danchuk um, is, a, a, is a campaigner on these things, and he was outraged. He said uh, he should have got at least fingers. <laughs> I sort of feel like I devalued myself there. <laughs> Just imagine Simon saying it. It's not that I should have got fucking fingers. <laughs> no, that was worse, wasn't it? <laughs> Back away from that. Uh, the Vote Leave uh, party political broadcast is wonderful. It shows you a vision of Britain in the EU and out. And the way they demonstrate this is by an old lady going to A&E. And at this point, the screen splits. So it shows you the same woman going through A&E, but inside the EU and outside the EU. And inside the EU, like, it's definitely like, they've definitely like, grayscaled it a bit. So they deliberately make it, why would the sun be in? Why would clouds be affected by the referendum? Never mind. And like, there's more doctors knocking around on the outside of the EU one. Like, the the, the uh, nurses are stressed. The doctors don't want to see it. She's sort of coughing. And what's really funny is, on the one outside the EU, so they both walk in, and she goes to the desk, and it's just a lot quicker in the outside the EU side of the screen. And she sits down. In the, what I love about this is she sits down in the outside the EU thing, and she's still coughing, but she's smiling as she coughs. She goes, oh yeah. So it probably is chronic lung cancer, but at least I'm British. What sort of message are they sending? Of course, this sort of this racial element has played into the referendum campaign, hasn't it? And then some people would say that's vote leaves deliberate ploy. Uh, but uh, Pat Glass, who's a Northern Labour MP, was campaigning the other week, and she knocked on some guy's door, talked to him. She didn't know what he had to say, and she was caught on microphone saying, "Oh, I don't know who that was, but it was some horrible racist." I'm never coming back to wherever this is, right? And um, she then apologised. I said, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. And you think, right, we're having a Gillian Duffy moment all over again now. And Labour people need to be a bit more open-minded about working-class people's problems with immigration. BBC Radio Derby then go, 
We did talk to the man who denied being racist, but did say that his community was full of scrounging Polish people. <laughs> I think maybe he is a racist. <laughs> I mean, she's criticised him, hasn't she, Pat Glass? I mean, all I'm saying is, you know, people who live in Pat Glass's houses... <laughs> Um, my favourite report is Tristram Hunt's report into the English identity in the Labour Party. This has been done by Winchester University and Tristram Hunt's uh, written it. Now, if you're not familiar with Tristram, he's a historian. He's one of the Labour MPs for Stoke-on-Trent. And his whole, the whole point of this report is, effectively, you know, why isn't Labour connecting with the English? And is the English identity something Labour should be owning? Now, in order to understand that, you'd think there'd be some pretty straight language. This is literally the opening page... <laughs> of a report about why, effectively, white working-class people aren't voting Labour. These are the first words in the report. This royal throne of kings. (laughs) (laughs) This sceptered isle. (laughs) This earth of majesty. This seat of Mars. This other Eden, demi-paradise. This fortress built by nature for herself, against infection and against the hand of war. This happy breed of men. <laughs> this little world. This precious stone set in the silver sea, which serves in it the office of a wall or a moat, defensive to a house, against the enemy of less happier lands. This blessed plot. This earth, this realm, this England. <laughs> that right, so he's quoted that, obviously. And then it says, There are few passages in our literary canon that are more frequently used to invoke a settled view of England... Then the dying John of Gaunt's pine in Shakespeare's Richard II. <laughs> Wait, these people give a shit about... The driving around... Well, fucking immigration is what they bothered about, mate. The fucking p- price of a pint, not fucking... Oh, but... Um, anyway, I think this sort of sets up the idea that Tristram might be part of the problem. Um, <laughs> just a hunch. <laughs> Anyway, they've got in this document, and some of these are fucking... You have to wait through a lot of shit. I've done it on your behalf. Um, <laughs> a lot of, frankly, uh, accounts of Labour candidates who lost and are telling us why they lost. So there's, uh, there's one here uh, from the guy who stood against Nick um, Clegg in Sheffield Hallam. Uh, and this is how he starts. Made in Sheffield. He's not simply a phrase engraved on the very best cutlery. <laughs> But the words ingrained on the heart and soul of people right across the city. <laughs> oh, this one, Hazel Grove. This is from Michael Taylor, also lost. <laughs> this is brilliant because in March 2015, Conrad Cliverdell was arrested and jailed in Dubai for charges of espionage. So you think, oh, this is got the blood front of it. He was a plane spotter. <laughs> I did what I could, and after eight weeks, he was released without charge. But here's the point. Some of my colleagues looked at me strangely. Plain spotter. Really? <laughs> so already you sort of think, well, this is intriguing. And this, is, this is his angle, right? This is, if you're thinking, how the fuck does this relate to like patriotism? And the Labour Party, the more I thought about it, the more it became clear to me that there was something so lovably English about Conrad's hobby. <laughs> These hobbyists... These thrill-seekers? <laughs> what the fuck? Look at the place. We don't know much about until they get locked up in Dubai. And then these are the people that he sort of lists as sort of lovingly quirky and weird English little hobbyists. Allotment holders. Music obsessives. 
choir masters, canal barge dwellers, <laughs> professional gamblers, <laughs> professional gamblers, alcoholics, people who smoke, <laughs> and small business people. Like, you can't lump SMEs in there with them loads of fucking virgins on the canals, mate. That's not there. Oh, some right fucking weirdos in my constituency. One of them sells papers for a living. He's fucking gnarly. <laughs> Oh my god. Anyway, so it's all like he set up this guy's oh fucking comrades are weird, already looking at planes in Dubai. Get this for an ending. I can't claim I got what Conrad and his pals were up to that evening in Dubai. But as a preteen lad, I did used to stand at the end of station platforms collecting train numbers. I have some empathy. Mate, <laughs> like, you're fucking worse. Like plane spotting is surely better than train spotting, isn't it? <laughs> But Ed Miliband, Ed Miliband's back in the news. Uh, Ed Miliband apparently is giving counsel and advice to, um, to Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and a source to the Telegraph said, in order to avoid the mistakes that Ed made. Um, you just think, what? So I would love to see Miliband giving advice. Uh, look, uh, just, um, uh, yeah, avoid sandwiches. Uh, <laughs> cancel the granite, that's a bad idea. <laughs> Yeah, try not to talk like this. Oh, it really is a try. Yeah, if you've got a brother, don't fuck him over. I mean, I can't emphasise that enough. Yeah, even if he's a fucking weirdo. Yeah, well, it turned out I was the one in that relationship, but never mind. Um, I think my favourite, though, um, uh, story, and I'll leave you with this, is of uh, Nicholas Soames, uh, who's one of my favourite Conservative MPs. Absolute legend, isn't he, Soamesy? And... Uh, He's been very passionate about Britain staying in the EU, and he's a big old uh, grandee of a Tory, and I think a lot of people, it would have been easy to conceive that perhaps Nicholas would have voted to leave the EU, but no, absolutely not. He's, he's pro-EU, and he's very um, blunt about it. And I don't know if anyone knows what he said. He had an argument or an exchange of words with another Tory MP called James Cleverly in one of the tea rooms uh, just a few days ago in Parliament. And the Daily Mail reported what he said to James Cleverly. Now, I'll give you a clue, maybe you can guess. He's the grandson of Winston Churchill, obviously the great wit. Um, so maybe you can remember some Churchill quotes or something like that. Um, I'll put you out your misery. Um, James Cleverly um, sort of goaded him about being um, a pro-European. And Nicholson sat there in the tea room. And if you don't know what he looks like, he basically looks like Brian Blessed without the beard. And um, just looked at him across the room and just went, Fuck off, you cunt. <laughs> Yeah. Just straight across the tea room. Fuck off, you cunt. Fucking <laughs> about Churchill's grandson. The great man. Oh, just fuck off. <laughs> just love to think that you could sort of hear the clink of China in the background. Oh, yes, I'll just have a couple more flashes. <laughs> one sugar, yes. Oh, why? Fuck off, you cunt. Well, and they it to the sort of Ray Winston of the, <laughs> of the common tea room. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, um, already this is uh, a wonderful atmosphere, so thank you already for that. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be joining the second half of one of the guests I've been most excited about. He's an absolute legend. And as always, at the end of the second half, if you want to ask a question, I will uh, come to the audience. Have a think and a break about what you'd like to ask. Um, we'll be back in about 20 minutes. I'll see you in a bit. Cheers. Oh, very kind. Very kind. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, well, thank you very much, uh, and thank you for, for... I have to say, one of the best audiences we've ever had here, so uh, thank you. You genuinely... Uh, so I'm not just saying that so that you're nice for the next hour. I really mean it. Um, uh, now, we've had a, a variety of guests here, and I deliberately try and get people from across the political spectrum. Uh, and I know I say this every month, but I think it's really fascinating to talk to people at various different stages uh, in their career. 
And sometimes it's easier to book guests whose careers are behind them, who are the former party leaders or uh, former Home Secretaries and all the rest of it. It's far harder sometimes to actually get someone when they are currently leading a party, which is why I'm so grateful that our next guest has come down tonight. Uh, the Liberal Democrats find themselves in a... Uh, a, a, a tricky position. Um, uh, as does everyone who isn't the sort of SNP, it seems. Or the, well, a couple of tricky positions, but not political. Um, <laughs> just thought that. Um, we have, uh, we're very, very uh, honoured to, to have our next guest here. He's undoubtedly um, one of the most likeable uh, members of Parliament there is, and he's certainly changed the tone with which the Liberal Democrats are handling themselves these days. Um, it would just be uh, fascinating to hear his thoughts, his views uh, and his stories. Please give a massive, massive welcome to the leader of the Liberal Democrats, Tim Farron. Now do. Hang on. All right. <laughs> Tim, I think I'm trying to remember who else has brought beers up here, and I think Angus Robertson did. Have you had Farage? (laughs) Farage did. Um, I think Farage actually came up with water and then ordered a bottle of Rioja mid-gig. Right, okay. (laughs) Um, Okay, okay. So you're in fine company. (laughs) So do relax and enjoy yourself. Um, Firstly, um, I mean, there's so many things that I've been wondering what to start. And I, I guess... Promises question time uh, is, is a good access point because it's something that a lot of people watch. How difficult is it for you to actually get Burko's eye and get questions in? And do you have a sort of an arrangement where you say, look, it's been a couple of months, mate. Chuck <laughs> 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 a bone here, you know. Yeah, there's a, the deal is that I get one every three weeks. But okay. I, I just think, you know... Shy Bairn's getting out, so I, I try and stand every week. Um, and uh, partly to make a point, really. Uh, I mean, I, for what it's worth, I mean, I think Promise of Question Time is important, it's interesting, um, and it's an opportunity. Uh, so it's just frustrating in one sense, particularly, you know, no offence either to Angela Eagle today or Jeremy Corbyn normally. I just think the Tories being let off the hook week after week after week, and I just think. One question. I don't need six. I want one. Um, and I'd have them. Um, but, um, uh, but, you know, there you go. Uh, but it, we are we are. I can't, I can't undo the last election. I get what I'm entitled to, I guess. And you've got to find other ways of talking to people like this. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll ask you more than one question tonight. That's very so kind. <laughs> uh, yeah. oh, well, 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 we'll see what they are. <laughs> I mean, you must look at Angus Robertson with sort of jealous eyes and think... Had only, you know, the, the electoral system been yeah. different or, you know, a few seats over there, perhaps, yeah. um, you'd be getting two questions every Yeah, week. I mean, first of all, I knew what the gig was when I stood to be leader, so <laughs> it doesn't, I don't get cheesed off about it, it's just how it is. Um, and I'm not somebody who actually thinks the House of Commons is the be-all and end-all. I never have. Um, the first sort of job I got, if you like, when I, uh, after being an MP, I became Ming Campbell's PPS, which is the kind of, you know, junior bag carrier. And my job was to sort of sit behind Ming at premises questions when we had more MPs than the SNP have now, and he had two questions every week. And my job was basically to lean forward and say, Cameron's nicked your question, plan B, <laughs> um, and, uh, and that sort of stuff. And Didn't I never... say lean forward and keep him upright. Yeah, that's, well, you know. <laughs> 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 never had a problem with that with Ming. He was all right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. That was that was a problem. That was a problem with some other leaders. We've uh, we moved on, uh, but um, but, uh, but he was um, 
<laughs> but you know, so it's, it matters. It matters to political nerds like we are, most yeah. of us, and it matters very much to MPs. I'm not sure it matters massively to normal folk. No, but just in terms of your job as leader of the Lib Dems, what it's like because you've must you've sat. Where the SNP have sat, yep. you've sat on the government side. Yep. You're not one of those people who's had a season to get in every stand. That's it's right. <laughs> that is right. Yeah, yeah. Just, just never behind a dispatch box. Yet. <laughs> no, no. So that's, that's when I've saved up enough. Was that, was that a sort of conscious decision to not want to take a, a sort of ministry? No, to be, to be blunt, I was never asked. Um, I think when we got into government, I mean, you have to ask Nick about this, but uh, we got offered, well, we had 18 ministerial positions. I was a shadow. Uh, Defras or Rural Affairs spokesperson at the time, and that was not one of the gigs we took. So I was, you know, I, do you know it's funny really? I was kind of, um, to, I was a bit narked and I was also a bit relieved at the same time. Yeah. To be honest with you, um, and uh, but things could happen, happen very differently. What happened then was that uh, the party presidency, the, kind of the, the chair of the party position, came up in the autumn. I thought, well, I'll have a crack at that. And having got elected party president, I was then, if you like, in a, uh, a reserved occupation. And so I was the one person who didn't need to worry about reshuffles because he couldn't sack me. Um, yeah. uh, the, the, you know, the members could, but the, uh, Nick couldn't sack me. Um, but I couldn't be appointed to any position either so I kind of sat all that out and what were your thoughts because it must have been an incredible time to be I, I just think you know the whole actually the last sort of five years six years have been the Lib Dems the most remarkable party even given the, the the tumult that's gripping the Labour Party at the moment to go from potentially thinking I will never you know government is not something that will ever be on my radar yeah. to then overnight thrown into a coalition to then conceivably, just from a personal point of view, let alone a political one, thinking, actually, I might achieve high office of some sort, and then, <laughs> yeah. just a few years later, be yeah, further yeah. away than you were originally. Yeah. You know, just the sort of cruel nature of the tide of politics. I mean, did you feel that as an individual, that actually, when, when the coalition was formed, just from a, a sense of personal ambition, you might be able to fulfil things you never thought you would? Well, I don't... Not on a personal level particularly, but I just think you can, you can achieve stuff in power. Yeah. Um, and if, if I'm honest with you, it's one of the things that kind of frustrates me about the Labour Party today. I can count myself as a progressive, the, uh, if you like, the Tories are the enemy, the Labour Party are the competition. Um, I count myself as a progressive and it frustrates me massively. And I like Corbyn, you know, during the Blair years, he was always in our lobby. So I, uh, I saw him... Re- I saw him I saw him regularly. Um, so I think he's a decent, decent chap. He really is a decent chap. But I get cross because all these things that the Tories are getting away with, they're getting away with because the opposition is not because it's too left-wing, because it's shambolic. And, and so if you are in power, you can do stuff. Uh, you can stop terrible things happening. You can make good things happen. Uh, whether it be the local level, you know, in our neck of the woods, we built a thousand council houses. We run our council. Uh, uh, national level, we were able to, you know, make sure we built loads and loads of solar and wind and energy, green energy uh, farms and so on, things which made a big difference. You can't do that sort of stuff if you lose. So it's a peculiar thing for a, a bloke with eight MPs to say to somebody who's got 230, you're not serious about power. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I'm happy to take the tough route, and we've definitely taken it, um, but I, I want to be in power, because, you know, it, it, feeling good about yourself in the opposition helps nobody. Oh, you, you obviously have a fondness for the Labour Party, as a lot of people from the great liberal tradition do, um, despite the rivalries that have existed over the years. I mean, it, this is a massive opportunity for the Liberal Democrats, though, isn't it? Because after what is as close to obliteration as is possible for a political party, the Labour Party effectively deserting the centre, mm. which is where the Liberal Democrats have been positioned for so long, actually it presents a massive opportunity for you to say, actually, yeah. the Labour Party have gone mad, if that's what you think. 
No. I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> come to the Liberal Democrats. Look at us again. Yeah. We can be the sort of SDP. Yeah, I think the problem we've got, uh, so you're absolutely right, um, there is a desperate need for a kind of moderate progressive party in British politics um, because you can achieve nothing if you keep losing elections. What I think a lot of people in the Labour Party have chosen to do is to remember fondly the 1980s. And <laughs> politics might have been fun in the 1980s. I enjoy my politics in the 1980s. <laughs> but we haven't to forget the Tories were in power for every single minute of the 1980s. So feeling good about yourself and achieving flip all is not good. Um, and so I, I just think, right, OK, there's a space there um, and we need to occupy and it's naturally our space. The problem we've got is, frankly, relevance and credibility. We have to grow from the grassroots up. So I think the Labour Party's lesson from... Uh, uh, you know, losing last year was we're not left wing and shambolic enough. Um, and, and, our, and the lesson we and and, and, the, and, the, and, and the um uh, and, and the lesson we've learned, you know, is that power is worth it, but by golly, you have to pay a price. Mm. Uh, but we've got to build up from the grassroots up. So I can't. I mean, I'd love to invent, you know, 50, 60, 70 new Lib Dem MPs. I can't do it like that, but I can incrementally by taking local elections seriously, build up from the grassroots. And these elections we had, you know, three weeks ago, the first time in eight years, we've made gains. Uh, in any election of any kind. So it's positive for us, but we've a long way to go. Has anyone in the Labour Party, at any level under Corbyn, made an approach or said, look, let's form some form of coalition or work closely together? There's people who talk to us, um, talk to me, I should say, um, and I, uh, but I, so I wouldn't betray any of their confidences. Uh, I don't think there's imminent imminent defections. Yeah. I suspect there'll have to be a failed coup first. Um, but, uh, but we'll see. And, and who knows? I mean, it could be uh, like the SDP, there could be a separate party formed, it could be that people come to us, it could be something, some other model that we've not thought of emerges. I don't know. I'm, I'm up for there being a realignment of the centre-left in British politics, and I'm up for us being the central place, the marketplace where that happens. And is it... Um well, centrists prefer the market, don't they? The, yeah, yeah. Um, Social market. <laughs> a refereed, balanced market. <laughs> Do, I mean, in terms of the Labour people who are sort of making the approaches, are they sort of from the, would we call the Blairite wing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, how is Liz Kendall? Because I haven't seen the phrase. <laughs> so I'm not going to eliminate them all one by one, but it's not her. <laughs> um, so, I mean, do they... In the manner in which they do it, then, do they sort of email, or do they sort no. of just I mean, hang around the back? To be honest with you, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they sit with a fedora hat, wearing a... Yeah. Galloway's yeah, yeah. No, it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Corbyn's even too left-wing for Galloway. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But, but they sort of... They do it... No, to be honest with you, mostly it's, it's just talk, and I think people... A lot of people in their party just feel very frustrated. Yeah. Now, to some extent, it's because... And that's the Tristram Hunt stuff you were talking about earlier on. Yeah. It's fascinating. And I remember picking up this week when I, I heard the, um, uh, the analogy of middle-class passengers on a Ryanair flight. And I thought, yeah. absolutely. The thing is, they wrote that about the last election. My sense is that yeah. Labour Party has become more like that since the election rather than less, less like that. Um, and there is a, but there is a sense that you know, some of the you know, centrist uh, Labour MPs perhaps haven't come to terms with the fact that the party has changed, that things have changed. And it's no good going around pointing the finger at 
the Corbyns and the Trumps of this world um, because they are, they are a consequence of a lack of trust in politics and in politicians. People will look for populist, simplistic solutions when, if you like, more conventional uh, options sort of appear to evaporate. And, and it's, it's no good pointing the finger at them. We have to understand why it is people have lost trust in institutions. It's why, you know, Farage and co can just say, oh, you can't trust the, uh, uh, the Institute of Fiscal Studies or the IMF or the United Nations. Well, actually, normally speaking, people would trust these organisations, you know, more than you, Nigel. But, 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 but having said that, they're the establishment, aren't they? And it's easy to do that, and you kind of just displace all the time. So, I mean, I'm not cross with Corbyn. I'm just frustrated at the fact that there's no sensible, decent opposition the Tories can get away with murder. So how, how does the, the centre or the, the mainstream, however you want to define it, overcome and defeat Trump in America, Corbyn, Farage, etc.? Well, you can't... You Actually, what's the point? How to energise and inspire people again? That's, that is it. I mean, in the end, you were talking before about patronising young people. And so I remember what got me... I, I joined the Liberals when I was 16, and I got involved in politics um, because I, I watched a repeat of Cathy Come Home when I was 14, and it made me cry. <laughs> it made me cry. And I thought, I've got to do something about this. This is outrageous. So I was a very earnest 14-year-old. Um, and uh, in the days when there were only three, only three channels, and you had to watch what was on. Yeah. Um, and I watched it. I, I saved you know, the money I would normally have my pocket money, which would normally have gone on a Smith single, uh, went on a postal order to join Shelter. Um, so I think I got involved in politics because stuff upset me and motivated me. And I think most people just want to be moved by, by, by an issue and to be brought into activism because they care about it. And if you just talk down to young people, people of any generation, um, then why should they engage you at all? So you've got to speak to people with passion. The passion's got to be real. It's probably good if you, you know, I mean, the, uh, Charles Kennedy said a number of things to me. The most useful thing he ever said to me, first time I ever went on question time, was just be yourself. And I think the problem is there's too much kind of spin, there's too much contrivance, and to be fair, that's one of Corbyn's strengths. I think he is genuinely who he is. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and actually, that's good. That is good. It's his biggest weakness. Yeah, well, to a degree. To a degree. But, um, but so I think, no, I think be, authenticity is important. You can't, you can't contrive it, because by definition it's not authentic. Um, and uh, and you've, got to enga- you've, got to, you've got to believe in things yourself. And if you do, then you might be infectious and bring people on board. And that's something certainly that you've got, is that you don't behave like, you know, a machine politician. I mean, do you think... I haven't got much of a machine, really, let's be honest. I wonder if... Uh, <laughs> well I put want... together, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder if, actually, it's the style of politics. Because, actually, if you think broadly of uh, the post-war governments that Britain has had... On the whole, I mean, obviously there have been major issues in the area that I grew up in, unemployment and poverty. On the whole, the, the arc has bent towards progress, and as a society we have become more affluent and mm. more caring, etc. So actually, on the whole, you could argue that politics has delivered for most people most of the time. Is it then just about the style of politics that people have become frustrated with the language of it and the, the behaviour of it? Well, I can get you know, very sort of sociological about this. I think there is a sense in which, uh, first of all, the growth in the media, not just social media, but especially that, uh, the accessibility of politicians, the accessibility of truth about politicians. You mentioned the other RMSP, uh, SNP colleagues earlier on, but you know, plenty of politicians of all kinds have been uh, caught in compromising situations and also you know, doing <laughs> one thing and saying the other and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, and, and there's a lack of deference, and that's probably a good thing, but the decline in deference for people in 
positions of authority has gone to the point where we now instinctively distrust everybody and everything. Um, and I think that has had an enormous impact. So even if you are living a relatively affluent life, you've got you know, lots of privileges, you may have lots of rights that didn't used to be uh, present for people, you don't particularly feel like giving anybody any credit for it because mm. you kind of see these people who you just suspect as being shallow people, people who are on the make, people who are telling you one thing and uh, in reality doing something else. But isn't that just... The way it's going to be is that I think people expect too much of their politicians sometimes. People are going to get drunk, people are going to have sex, people are just as much as any other group of 650 people put into that position. I mean, in in a way, that erosion of deference, as you say, has been positive. But how does, given that that's probably not going to change, how does Parliament and politics convince people that actually, yet some of us are pissed and shagging a lot? (laughs) (laughs) But. We can still deliver an NHS or, you know, reduce crime. I mean, my, ge- my general sense is that kind of, you know, the uh, p- politicians' personal lives actually is, is, is at the low end of the stuff that bothers yes. people. I think people are generally speaking quite, you know, forgiving and tolerant and recognise that politicians are, you know, people like anybody else. Um, I think it's the, there's that disconnect. I think it's the, uh, the sense that um, politics is very shallow that it looks like it's people all look the same uh, from very similar backgrounds, generally speaking quite privileged backgrounds, um, and that it all just seems so packaged and manufactured. And it's why, you know, so maybe I should feel more knocked that I don't get called in the House of Commons and mm. I don't have that front bench position like mm. Angus has got now. I, uh, but part of me just kind of feels a bit of disdain for the place. It's a great place to get work done. Mm. I go there to make a difference for people in my patch up in Cumbria and hopefully to raise issues that matter across the country. I mean, I, I like to think that the stuff we've done in Parliament is is why these 3,000 unaccompanied child refugees are going to come to Britain now, because we would not let that go, and we use Parliament for that. So it's a great workplace. You can get stuff done. But I have got some disdain for the place. I think it is full of, you know, some very good people, but also people who start off with advantages that most people don't have and do not understand normal people's lives. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, in terms of Parliament itself, though, I mean, do you enjoy the atmosphere of the Commons? Um, I don't hate it, but it's not my thing either. I mean, I I, I find it... I mean, I kind of laugh at it rather than with it. Um, (laughs) And there's some some great speeches you sometimes hear, wonderful speeches, some great questions, um, and all the rest of it. So I thought Angus Robertson used his questions today really well about a, a lad in the in the highlands who's uh, him and his family are to be deported because of some cock up with immigration and so occasionally you can acknowledge people you know use the commons well um, so i don't hate it um but i often say i've never felt so common than the day i entered the house of commons because yeah. he's surrounded by people who just they're just not like me i don't want to do an andy burnham and say it's, <laughs> it's terrible up north you know if you don't want to go down if you don't want to go, don't go, down, go down the pit then there's nothing for you but um i think he was he was over egging it you know uh, it was the minus say. lamp that really... It was, you know. It, I, just, I think, you know, it's like I sometimes think the SNP think that Braveheart was a documentary. Um, I, think, I, think, uh, I think Andy was thinking that the kind of Yorkshire, Yorkshire the Third World sketch in The Meaning of Life was uh, a documentary too. It's and it, it isn't quite like that. Yeah, yeah. It's not like Kez. Not all, no. not all the time. Uh, I mean, I mean, Everything you say about the the things that make people cynical about politics is true about, you know, there's this perception that it's privileged and people who come from different backgrounds and don't understand other people's lives. And I just wondered, when was the last time you spoke to Nick Clay? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I had a... (laughs) 
I had a curry with him last Wednesday. <laughs> so there you are. And how is he? He's all right, actually. I think he... I mean, what a change in, in life for him, really. I think there's a set... I mean, obviously, having been Deputy Prime Minister for five years, leader for nearly eight years, to go to the position where you know, not either of those things um, will feel like a, a, a loss to him. But actually, I think there's a sense in which he's got his life back. Um, and, it, you know, I, I've got a busy job leading the party, but the reality is that the job I've got is absolutely frontline. It's out in the... You know, I was in Yeovil yesterday. I've been in Liverpool recently. I'm all over the country just trying to build back up at the grassroots and all that kind of stuff. Whereas Nick's job was constantly to be, frankly, locked in... Uh, meetings in mm. London, away from his family, doing great things. So there's, you know, um, I talked about the child refugees before, but there's something like 7,000 children of asylum seekers in Britain who are not locked up now because of stuff Nick Clegg mm. did when he was in, in power. And as the years go by, even as the months go by, I'm certain history will be kind to Nick. I'm absolutely convinced of it. Um, uh, but he's, you know, he's in the position he's in now. He gets to see his kids. He goes to football matches with them. And, you know, I don't feel envious of him in one sense, but in another sense I do. And I think... I think so. I think he's he's happy. He's well and determined to still make a, a contribution. He is twelve and a half percent of my parliamentary party. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> because it must. I mean, it, it, it must have been a fascinating person to follow because he obviously went through that period of relative obscurity, intense uh, popularity, albeit brief, and then actually yeah. for five years. And I think even his harshest critics would say this. A serious government figure. Yeah. If you were to ask people to name the figures of the 2010 to 2015 government, they would say David Cameron, Nick Clegg, mm. probably George Osborne III. They, you know, he was absolutely the heart of government. Uh, certainly that was perception from the outside. And actually, I think, uh, I think you're right. I think history will judge him um, fairly. I just... I wonder how you know how often you see him. Is he is he around Parliament? Yeah, much? I mean, is it a bit. difficult place for him to be? Do you think? I don't know. I mean, I think like me, he's not somebody who particularly loves the House of Commons. Mm. Um, and in one sense, when you're a minister, particularly if you're deputy prime minister, you don't have to do a lot in the House of Commons because you turn up for your question time, and the rest of your time you are in. Uh, your department and other departments uh, and you're in a central position like Nick was. Um, but no, he, he's, a, he's an absolute trooper. He works really hard. He does all sorts. I mean, when, when you've got eight of us, we've all got about three and a half portfolios. Um, and uh, so I was great appointing myself as Shadow Chancellor. I enjoyed that. Um, and uh, I'm doing a great job. Um, I'm not, 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 not thinking of reshuffling myself just yet. Um, but... Um, uh, Don't do it. Probably get in trouble, mate. Yeah, apparently that's right. <laughs> it's... Um, I mean, there seems to be, and it's, it's massively refreshing, a genuine sense of a sort of light-heartedness and gallows humour, really, about the sort of situation that you're in, I suppose, well, politically. In one, in one sense, um, you know, the alternative is to be incredibly miserable about it all. Uh, the other thing is, well, I, uh, I, I joined the Liberals when I was 16, yeah. um, and then we merged with the SDP, and, and we had a similar time then, frankly, a point where we were even more calamitously unpopular and all the rest of it uh, for a couple of years after that. And I was in Yeovil yesterday, and in a sense, that's where the last revival began under Paddy Ashdown. Yeah. Um, and you know, I remember you know, we, were, we were mocked for being completely irrelevant, we had opinion polls that put us on 8, 9, 10% now. Well, I mean, I kind of dreamed of that back then. <laughs> we had at least one poll. The poll before the European elections in 89 had us on zero. 
literally zero. And they still worked out we'd hold Caithness and Sutherland uh, on zero. I don't know how that worked out, but, but still. Uh, we're going to have one MP according to that poll and no votes. Um, and, uh, and so there is a sense in which we've been through it before. Uh, Joe Grimman led a party of five, and he talked about realignment to the left. I don't know if people laughed at him at the time either, but in time it came about. And um, so we've been through difficult times before. I mean, you know, before I joined, but of course I read all about the Jeremy Thorpe uh, saga, so neither Nick Legg <laughs> nor I have been on trial for attempted murder or shooting anybody's dog. Um, and, uh, so, you know, it's been worse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to, to the party's credit, I mean, outwardly, actually, the party has a genuine sense of humour. I, I, I don't mean that sound in a patronising way, but if, if you deal with, you know, the Labour Party press office on Twitter or the Tories on Twitter, they're quite combative beasts. The Lib Dem press office, actually, I've I got a, a, a wonderful people who've helped um, bring you here tonight. Uh, yeah, they're, all, they're all here. Oh, they're all here. <laughs> um, but I remember one, there was one exchange that I had uh, on Twitter where I'd, I can't remember, I'd said, oh, you know, full credit to Yvette Cooper and Angus Robertson for uh, the, the work on refugees. And the Lib Dem press office said, um, don't forget Tim Farron. And I said, oh, sorry, uh, I apologise to all Lib Dems. And they replied, we're both offended. Full <laughs> 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 uh, <all> credit. <laughs> but that's, fu- that's funny to do that in public. And people go, oh, you know what? You've got to, I mean, you've got to enjoy it. There, like is a, there is a sense in which... Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, we do our best. You know, I think, you know, we are an absolutely resilient outfit. I mean, in many other countries and cultures, we would utterly have disappeared uh, by now. We were, because we're not going to all the boring sort of reasons why I think this happened, but after the First World War, we were basically replaced by the Labour Party. We perhaps shouldn't have been if we got things right, but, you know, when you fall out and you've been in coalition... There's messages to be learned. So at least we haven't fallen out. Um, and, uh, but, you know, there's almost after the Second World War, you'd have, what's the point in the Liberals? And yet we, we fought on for civil liberties, for, um, for that kind of sense that you can be a progressive without being a socialist. Uh, and through the 50s and 60s, tough years, we managed to, to, to come back. Um, and I think, I mean, if you look at what happens, we made 45 net gains in the local elections, which is our, the first set of elections we've made net gains in for eight years of any kind. My sense is if we'd believed in ourselves a bit more, we'd have made 200 gains. But I think we had to go through this May where people thought, ah, people don't hate us anymore. People are listening to us. People are prepared to give us the time of day. And if you give them a decent message, they will vote for you. There's loads of people out there who do not want to uh, vote for the Tories, feel the Labour Party is a shambolic opposition, (laughs) and think, you know what, the Liberal Democrats will give them a a go. So that's, I think it's game on for us now. I'm not saying it'll all go wonderfully, but I feel we've turned the corner. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Because the Lib Dems have always been, I mean, arguably the best local campaigners that British politics has seen, certainly, uh, certainly in my lifetime. And we've all had the Lib Dem leaflets to the doors of two-horse race, you know, Labour can't win, all that sort of thing. <laughs> all, all, all the sort of classic Lib Dem things. I mean, do you think... That is still the bedrock of uh, the Lib Dem campaigning model um, that, that you've always been good at, say, a ground war. And do you think that any sort of elements of Lib Dem campaigning should change in that regard? Well, I think that, I mean, the, the, 
what we call community politics, um, which is the idea that you actually immerse yourself in your community. And I, my great hero is a lady called Neva Oral, who passed away about 10, 12 years ago. She was my councillor in Leyland in Lancashire. And she joined the Liberals in 1949 because we'd been through a war, she'd lost loved ones, and she wanted to join a political movement that she thought stood for those sort of things that would make another war least likely. So she was an internationalist, she was liberal, she believed in human rights and all of those sorts of things. And she then spent the next, what, 50 years of her life um, delivering leaflets about dog poop and, <laughs> and, and potholes and, and working to get people school places in the places they'd applied for rather than having to go to the other end of town and all that kind of thing. And some people think that's in Congress. I don't. I think that if you are a Liberal and you, care, you say you care about individuals, you prove it by serving the ones in your community. And politics is about service. Um, and so that's where it does start. And I think that keeps politics authentic. So, you know, I, I was brought up with that kind of politics. I still do that kind of politics now. And I want it to kind of infect what we do nationally. Because if nothing else, it keeps you in touch with people. You don't have to run focus groups if you spend all your time knocking on people's doors and listening to them anyway. Because the Lib Dems have always had perhaps an unfair reputation um, for being so, so, you know, sort of going to the edges of what's acceptable in a by-election. Okay. I mean, <laughs> <is> that, <laughs> do you think that's sort of fair? I don't know. I'm sure all parties will have literature that's gone out on their behalf that they're not very proud of. Yeah, hell yeah. Um, and I think... I've um, written some of it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think it's important. I think if your opposition puts their head on the block, you can chop it off. Um, I think that's allowed. But I think you know, you, you, it's, but it's about getting the balance right. And I do think that... Um, you need to give people positive reasons to vote for you. Yeah. I mean, very often, I mean, you know, it's a case of reminding people that um, these are the good things we're going to do, these are things we've, yeah. good things we've done, these are the bad things they've done. And by the way, they can't win, so please vote for us. And uh, with us, that's really important because, frankly, as I said, our, our number one hurdle is credibility. If people believe you're in that binary, you're in that top two and you can win, suddenly, you know, it's possible that you, you can. I always thought it was a slightly unfair reputation that the Liberals, as many people in the Labour Party still call them, um, had. Because everyone in a by-election fights don't. I mean, at some point you're going to put out... You know, people would deliberately put out leaflets in blue ink in a Conservative thing to make it look like it was a Tory leaflet. I've or, heard that this happened. Or, or, or this sort of thing, you know. <laughs> sort of, um, uh, I mean, you had it yourself, didn't you, with, in 1997, that guy standing as a literal, literal, literal Democrat. Democrat. That's right, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he, I think we lost... Did we lose by 12 or something. <laughs> this guy got 10,000 votes and we lost by 12. Yeah. It would have been funny if he'd have won the rematch, really. But, it, 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 it. but all this stuff, I mean, some of the by-elections, I never knew, until, I think until you've worked on a by-election, you have no idea what everyone else is talking about. Yeah. They are like, they're turf wars. People yeah. stealing posters out of people's gardens and stuff. I remember turning up once, Leicester South, and you had a candidate called Palmjit Singh Gill, That's right. who won yeah. And then had it for about eight weeks because there was a general election. He like, managed a whole 11 months. 11 months, yeah. that was it. And then he lost it in the general election. I remember working on that for Labour, and it was one of the most insane by-elections I've ever worked on. And there was a guy running our operation called Roy Kennedy, who's now Lord Kennedy, he's been ennobled. And they had this whole thing where they said, Labour was saying to us, and they were constantly mad about the Liberals. I was like, but we're doing... I think we're worse. <laughs> but they would do this thing where they said, right, these, these garden stakes that people have in their garden with a big sort of vote Labour or vote Lib Dem, you know, the, the orange triangles and whatnot. And he said, what we're going to do, every local member's going to get one. It's an opt-out service. And if they don't reply, we'll put a letter out today. If they don't reply tomorrow, they're all Again, getting well, garden stakes. Yeah, yeah. 
Don't matter, mate. Don't matter, mate. And he, he hired this fucking white transit van. And me and this other guy had to drive it. And it was just full of these Labour Garden steaks. And all that was in the back was a hammer, a um, what was in the a, a crowbar? Yeah, yeah. And a pair of pair of step ladders. So we turned up at this one guy's house, like reverse the van down his drive. Yeah. <laughs> like back doors open. We get out with a hammer, a crowbar. This guy opens the door and goes, "Who the fuck are you two, like, mate?" We've won the Labour Party. Guess what, mate, by the neck? With a mallet. (laughs) Garden stakes, mate. We've won the Labour Party. Garden stakes. was like, yeah, I am a Labour Party. And I was like, oh, it's fine, it's fine. I said, right. And it's all calmed down. It's like, mate, it's fine, it's fine. We're Labour Party. members. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all good, man. It's all good. I was like, oh, cool, cool, cool. And then I was like, and I could see my mate was going to ask him. I said, don't fuck it. He went, so do you you want a garden stake? (laughs) 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 Fucking grab the crowbar and try and threaten him with it. (laughs) But then people would go, oh, the Liberals, they get up to some stuff. I was like, I was driving around with a fucking driving around with a crowbar for two months. (laughs) But it's, I mean, you must have seen stuff like that from all parties. I think, I mean, it's quite relatively respectable up in the lakes. I mean, we don't tend to take anybody else's down. They don't tend to take ours down. Um, But I think it does happen. And I think... In the end, you have to respect the electorate. And if people yeah. want to have a poster in their garden with the lot, you blooming leave it there. That's theirs, you know. Yeah. I remember I, um, I, I chased Charles Kennedy around dressed as a chicken once. That was you, was it? <laughs> yeah, 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 Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Leicester South, 2004. And uh, I was in this chicken suit, and we'd just sort of try and find out where Charles Kennedy was. And I stumbled out the back of this transit round in a chicken suit. <laughs> and then uh, Glenis Wilmot, who's a member of the European Parliament, on a loud hailer would go, Lib Dem, soft on crime, soft on thugs. <laughs> Soft on drugs, and I would sort of like dance. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <Brilliant. man. laughs> I feel like I'm sort of confessing a lot. It's all right. Sort of, yeah, consider just, yourself, you know, <coughs> forgiven and all that. I just want to apologise <laughs> to all Lib Dems for what I did. <laughs> <laughs> It's only just struck me that actually oh, I've been really bad to your party in the past. It's all right. <laughs> I really want to apologise. You're not the only one. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Um, I mean, it, it, we were talking backstage. And I sort of never like to refer to things that were said off stage, but I'm sure you're fine with it. About um, the debates between Clegg and Farage and how oh, yeah. you would play Farage yeah. in the sort of run-throughs. Yeah. So how would you? Um, you, you would sort of stand up behind podiums. You and Nick. Yep. And what sort of stuff would you say to him? Well, I mean, most, mostly just to completely wind him up and to talk about all the populist stuff that Farage does. Uh, I would talk about uh, immigration and people coming over here, taking our jobs, and, <laughs> you know, my granny couldn't get a, uh, an appointment with the doctors because of all these Romanians that come in. And the thing is, I spent quite a lot of time, we did it quite seriously, uh, so I think four members of HQ team, including one of Nick's team, helped to brief me in the week beforehand, <laughs> and we did four or five of these. Um, and, uh, and in the end, I couldn't be bothered learning all this stuff that they'd given me. Mm. I just stood up there and I made stuff up. <laughs> um, and, and Nick came down at, after one of these um, uh, these practices, and, and he was panicking. So how, how, you know, how, how, how can I counter these these things that Tim's come up with? I said, well, look, don't worry, I just invented them. That's that's all he'll do. Uh, so, but no, it was good fun, and it was a uh, you know I had to be really mean to to Nick. Um, I had to wear a uh, I had to wear a, a, a kind of I chose to wear a purple tie, um, and uh, uh, but I didn't have a beer sadly, so I'm making up for it now. <laughs> Did you ever sort of find yourself saying stuff as Farage that was ridiculous and going, that's quite a good idea? Uh, <laughs> there is a danger when you sort of get yourself into someone's head and you kind of think, I can see why this is a powerful argument. 
but um, I don't think I convinced myself, thankfully. Uh, and what was he like as a, as a sparring partner, Nick? Because I thought in those debates he was exceptional. Yeah. Um, especially dealing with a moving target like Farage, who's not going to play by the rules. Yeah, it was a really tough one. I think it was a really brave move for him, and it, it was his decision to challenge Farage. Yeah. And on paper, you know, you believe the polls, they, um, they said that he lost, but I mean, I think he lost something like 70 30. So, frankly, give us 30%, we'll have that any day of the week. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I think, I think he did. I think he did well, and I think it was always he was he was playing the kind of cerebral, thoughtful, reasonable card against yeah. a populist, and that's the tricky one. And that's that's the job Hillary Clinton is probably going to have for the rest of the year against Trump. How do you be uh, sensible, relatively moderate, assuming it is Hillary, but it almost certainly will be against somebody who can go absolutely anywhere and has nothing to tether them to any particular position, will say what's popular, will play to the gallery. And uh, it's a great strength if you can do that. Um, but that's a sense that that was the problem I think Nick, Nick faced. And, but I think in, it, was, it was the European elections 2014, frankly, were disappearing off the radar, and he kept us on it. And I think we, we therefore featured in that election more than we would have done if he hadn't been brave enough to take on Farage. I thought it was brilliant. It was great TV. Did you, were you there for both? Yeah, yeah, I was. I was there. And I had to remind myself I was now up for Nick. And, uh, yeah, not, not to cheer populist right-wing racist stuff uh, <laughs> at all, just because I'd said it a fortnight earlier. <laughs> I mean, in terms of the, the referendum that we face now, obviously the, the, the big question we're facing the nation, what's your instinct on, on what the likely outcomes can be? Um, well, my instincts are that Remain will win, but probably for not all the right reasons. And I think the polls are probably wrong. I think they're pro- I don't mean people who are Polish. I think they, <laughs> they do a good job. Um, and they should be allowed to vote as European Union citizens, but they're not. Um, but I think the opinion polls are probably wrong in the sense that they kind of say, what, 10, 12, 15% of people are undecided. I do not buy that. I think the majority of people have not reached a settled view. Mm. They might be leaning in one direction or another um, and have a kind of tendency, but I don't think they're necessarily being convinced. And I think people talk about, you know, project fear and then the need for more passion and positivity. Well, I agree with that. Um, But I also think people are craving reasonableness rather than the kind of hectoring of one another. Um, Because I I do think it'd be disastrous if we leave, but I also think that if you've lived in Britain for the last 20, 30 years and you're subject to nothing other than negativity about the European Union, it's perfectly understandable that you have a view which is, you know, sceptical or even more extreme than than that. And so it's important to respect other people's views and and believe them to have the right to hold them. Um, So I think it could go either way. Uh, I still think it could go either way. And I think if we as the Remain campaign win, my fear is that Cameron's approach to this, which is to slag off Europe up until February and then pretend it's just pragmatically useful for us, he might win, but will he kill it off for a generation? And my my criticism of Cameron, um, I think the thing I'm most critical of him probably... Uh, is his handling of the Scottish referendum, uh, of how, you know, in the seconds almost after the Better Together campaign had won the referendum, he, how he snatched defeat from the jaws of victory by going on the radio and on the TV and being, frankly, an English nationalist at the wrong, worst possible moment. The danger is that, just like with Scotland, he might limp us over the finishing line but not kill off the issue. You know, he may just win people's votes, but not win their hearts and minds, in mm. which case those of us who are going to carry on for more than a year or two, we hope, will have to fight this again um, at some point. And, and that's outrageous. In terms of uh, stronger in then, have, have you been involved much? Yeah, but I mean, the reality is that nobody seems to be interested in anything other than a couple of blokes from Eton. 
Um, <laughs> and it is difficult because I think you know, if you're talking to Jeremy Corbyn or Alan Johnson, I imagine they'd be just as cheesed off that it's a, it's a very narrow Tory focused campaign. My hope is that once we get into the last three weeks into June, that there will be more of a focus because um, we think we've got something to say. We want to have a kind of positive message about Europe that, it, yes, the economic argument is is strong. I think, yes, the, the warnings from the IMF and and the Institute for Fiscal Studies and the Treasury, I'm sure they're broadly accurate. I think that they, it, would, it would be a damaging thing for the economy for us to leave. But I'd much rather we said more positive and hopeful things. You know, I, so I grew up, what, in the, you know, as a teenager in the 80s, under the, you know, the, kind of the shadow of the bomb, if you like, the Cold War. And it, we could laugh at that now, since a long time ago, but it didn't seem funny at the time when you had Reagan and Brezhnev on the television, sabre-rattling, and it felt like it could all literally kick off at any moment. And you think, do you know what? Half a dozen of those countries that had nukes on their soil in the 80s pointed right here at this city... They sat around a table arguing the toss about fishing quotas now. And, if that, and honestly, if that was the only reason for being in the EU, that would do for me. And I, so I think the idea that we, the European Union is a place where peace is generated, the, arguably it's the most successful peace process in, 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 in world history. Um, and we shouldn't throw it away lightly. And I'd much rather we focused on those kind of positive, uplifting reasons being in the EU than all the negative horror that will happen if we leave. But there's not... I mean, oh, oh, There are also a lot of negatives associated with the EU, though, aren't there? There is a perception that um, it's a political project that's unaccountable. And you, actually, even as someone myself who's pro-European, can't help but acknowledge that that's a, a, a genuine fact. Most people don't know who their MEP is. Yeah. Uh, it's the Commission that makes the laws and not really the Parliament. You know, there, there's a democratic deficit mm-hmm. at the heart of it. And it does feel like there's a significant bureaucracy that exists if only to perpetuate itself, and yeah. people feel distant from it. Yeah. I mean, the, the EU needs comment. reform, doesn't no, it? No, it's fair comment. And I think the... Um, I mean, in one sense, we, we belong to... We pool our sovereignty in lots of different ways. So we belong to NATO, we belong yeah. to the UN and the World Trade Organisation and various other things. Netflix. As well, Netflix. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we've signed, signed up for that. You can't get out of that. Um, and, uh, uh, and all those things. And, and uh, in a sense, you pool your sovereignty by any of those acts. And the difference with the European Union uh, and those other outfits I mentioned is that we do at least elect people to go and represent us in the EU, and the Commission is a lot more accountable to the European Parliament than it used to be. Um, so, yes, you probably can't name your, uh, uh, your MEPs, but having said all that, at least you've got them. Um, those decisions and uh, discussions that take place in those other international bodies, we don't directly elect the people to go and talk um, at those. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a, it's a kind of a particular obsessive thing that people have about the European Union. So it's not perfect. There's lots wrong with it. Uh, there's lots wrong with the British government, the British political system. But as a northerner, I don't want to secede. I think there's, you know, I'd rather reform Britain from the inside. It's why it breaks my heart that Scotland is still, you know, toying with breaking up the UK. I really genuinely... Ap- really upsets me emotionally yeah. um, and I want us to be, I think we're always better together, um, I think it's better that we share, we better work together, we've got to achieve more together, all those big you know, threats that we face, climate change a refugee crisis, terrorism a global economy, yeah. you're much better off dealing with those things together than on your own I mean, it's, it's, In terms of climate change it's about some part of the UK, it's freezing up there Well they're not <laughs> <laughs> In Scotland It sort of brings the average temperature down in the it's UK does. It's yeah, very yeah. important um, I've always been interested in, in where people sort of get their politics from, and as you said earlier, it was uh, uh, at the age of 14 after watching an emotional film. I, I, I'm interested as to why you chose the Liberals and not the Labour Party at that juncture. 
Because um, I'm a weird sort of uh, contrary <laughs> type, really. Um, I think it was well, it's partly because I saw the, the Liberals walking the walk in my patch. It was an area where there were more Labour councils than there were Liberals, but the Liberals actually did what they said they were going to do. But I'm also somebody who is a Liberal, believes in individual liberty. I felt that the Labour Party was a little bit with small-c Conservative um, uh, and uh, kind of part of the establishment. The environment was a big thing for me as, as well. I mean, the second thing, I think I joined Shelter, I think I joined Greenpeace after that. I was a really interesting kid. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, and uh, you know, so all so, and I felt that the Liberals took environment seriously. The Labour Party only got into that latterly. One of Ed Miliband's legacies, actually, he wasn't a very good opposition leader. He was a very good energy and climate change secretary. I think I would, for his sake, I hope he's remembered... Uh, for that, um, he's uh, not. more than he, you know, <laughs> there you go, yeah. he's, he's not, is he? Um, but there you go. Um, so no, but we, we were the Green Party. We were we were a party that was liberal, took individual liberty seriously. Europe was a massive thing for me as well. And the Labour Party yeah. was only, actually, still broadly speaking, anti-Europe in those days. Only yeah. Kinnock who brought them into the pro-Europe fold. It used to be the Tories were, you know, pragmatically pro-Europe, like Cameron is, and the Labour Party were ideologically against Europe, like Corbyn really is. Um, but, uh, anyway. <laughs> How much? How much did your, fl- uh, your faith play a part in your, your sort of early political choices? And um, now? Well, I think it's about, it's about service um, and it's about sharing. It's about recognising that you aren't here to serve yourself but the needs of other people. Um, and it also, actually, it, it, it does make a difference if you, if you believe, you know, one of the, the, it's often one of the things that are sort of quoted out of context and in context that you can't take it with you. Um, well, it's not just your money you can't take with you, it's your reputation, it's your career, it's everything. And in which case, if you realise that um, what you do in this life um, has a, it's all, all finite, um, and it matters, but it doesn't matter that much, then you're much more likely to make uh, better decisions, hopefully more honest decisions, and you're not that fussed if you don't reach the top of the tree. And you think that it sort of a, kind of sounds like a sort of Methodism, uh, rather. Well, I'm very, I am low church, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no no of, yeah. bells, no smells, and we don't baptise babies. So there you go. <laughs> 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 That's just a few smells. It's Sorry, a great yeah. tagline. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's just it's, well, it's refreshing to you talk about it because obviously so many politicians um, are quite squeamish about talking about any side of their personality. Like, faith seems to be. Sort of has a bad name in British politics, do you think? Yeah, I think. I mean, I'm always cautious about talking about it in in one sense because I'm not a religious leader. You know, I'm. I'm um, there's a phrase in a line in the Book of Proverbs that says, "Whatever you put your hand to, do with all your might." So, whatever your job, whatever your role, you do your best at it. And I'm not there, so I'm not the Archbishop of Canterbury. I am not a religious leader. I am a political leader. I happen to be a Christian, um, and that's very important to me. But I think that the the observation is is right. In, in America, you've got to almost invent a faith to be taken seriously, <laughs> and in the UK, you've got to pretend you haven't got one. And I think both of those extremes are wrong. Um. Uh, I wanted to let people applaud. It's important. Um, I, it's just so. Uh, I, well, uh, one thing that troubles me, uh, and I and I say this as a former Christian who's now, you know, sort of on, on balance an atheist, is the disrespect with which religion is treated by people. I think it's perfectly fine to be uh, agnostic or atheist or whatever, but the the manner in which. Um, there seems to be an aggressive atheism that is that is openly disrespectful to Christianity and to all faiths. I mean, is that something you've encountered personally? Well, I thought two things. One is, I think, 
part of that is what we were talking about earlier on. In one sense, the church as an institution um, has been as, is, is as distrusted um, uh, uh, rightly or wrongly as the other institutions we were talking about earlier on. So it's yeah. about a kind of a decline in deference, a rise in suspicion, some of which is deserved, some of which isn't. Um, but I think in terms of the aggressive atheism, and you might be talking about you know, Richard Dawkins and so on, like uh, people uh, like that, I, in many ways I think they've done the church a, a service because um, there's been a laziness about actually building a rationale for faith and understanding the apologetics that you know, it's based on you know, historical truths, you make a judgment. Um, but the idea that we've all disengaged our brains to become a Christian. I mean, I'm, I'm somebody who is a, a liberal. I, don't, I wouldn't normally, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who would fall for religion, I think of myself. Um, but I, I believe uh, Christianity to be, to, be, to be true. But I think Dawkins has actually done us a big favour. Uh, and um, I, have, I have no problem. Actually, he's a great popularism, popular, popularizer of science, 40 years since the selfish gene, amazingly. Um, and I've got a lot of time for Dawkins, even if he doesn't think much of us. <laughs> Do you ever watch The Big Questions? Not often, no. Go <laughs> uh, on, tell me. I just watch it every Sunday with Nicky Campbell, and it's always, it's always sort of in Salford, and there's always uh, like imams there and people yeah. from churches I've never heard of. Yeah. And then uh, almost entirely what happens is you have um, a moderate Christian who's normal, like you, and then... <laughs> You have like a, a really quite aggressive one who's fire and brimstone Old Testament style. It's quite interesting for a bit. You have the same with Islam, and then you have like an atheist that just sits there and just sort of like is is, is rude and bait. And every week, Nicky Campbell says, "Join us next week for the big questions." <laughs> it doesn't matter what the topic of conversation is. Every week, that's the sort of formula for the program. I don't need to watch it. I'm probably at church, aren't I? I'm not watching. Well, do you, do, you, do you still go to church? Oh yeah, yeah. And do people there say, "Oh, it's Tim Farron, the local MP"? Uh, well, I think they're, uh, I think they're, they're just used to me by now. So it's not, it's not. But I mean, occasionally I pick up casework over coffee, um, which is. But they you know, I, people, people kind of tend to leave me. Like, I'm normally kind of trying to stop my children do something unspeakable. Oh. And people generally have sympathy and leave me alone. I never thought you'd get lobbied, sort of body of Christ. Yeah, while you're on your knees, mate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Could this about that planning application, could you? The vicarage needs a new roof, mate. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, yeah. That, 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 that does happen. Yeah. <laughs> I think when I said, why you're on your knees there, people thought I was going to go in a different yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> I should have just said, why are you receiving the Eucharist? Yeah. <laughs> we don't do that either. <laughs> so your children, then, I mean, do you... Um, what's it like being a, a leader of a political party and a father? Do you worry about them uh, being exposed to not just the sort of all the horrors mm. of the world, but also... Quite how aggressive politics is these yeah, days. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. So we, we, my kids go to school, high school and primary school in the village we live in, um, and they've. Uh, I became an MP when so I've got a much older daughter. My stepdaughter is in her late twenties, and then I've got um, three who are fourteen, twelve, and ten. Um, and so our, the, the ten-year-old was elect, uh, born after I was elected, and the others have kind of known, still re- really never known any difference apart from the eldest. Um, so I think people just accept it. It's just normal. It's the one part of my patch where I get least pestered because it's just you know I've lived there. At, Yonks and, um, but I think I think they are aware of it. Um, uh, I saw some homework that my twelve-year-old uh, did a year or so ago, where he was talking about when I came in to talk to his class when he was in oh top God. juniors, uh, and uh, you know our local MP bracket my dad came in, <laughs> and, and 
you know, and it's, so yeah, but I think, so in one sense it's normal for them, but, um, so I'm, I'm well done in my patch, and that hasn't changed with me being leader. Um, and the issue is the extent to which I'm spoken of outside my patch. Mm. And I think, you know, so I, I kind of do nearly know absolutely everybody in my patch. I make a point of it. Um, and so people aren't beastly. People aren't horrible. Um, but people will write some... It doesn't particularly upset me, but people will, will write things which are less than pleasant, you know, in national media. And you worry it gets picked up by the kids. So it, 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 I do feel a responsibility to make sure my children have a normal, a normal childhood. What about social media? I'm on it constantly. Well, yeah. well I know, but you're very good at it. I mean, do you, do you get much abuse on there? Anything nasty? Or? Oh, bits. I mean, yeah, bits. But you're just going to... I mean, it's a bit, it is like road rage, keyboard, keyboard warriors. It's pe- yeah. people who would never, I hope, ever talk to people like that in real life if they actually met them. But behind a keyboard, they've got that bravado like people have behind a... A steering wheel sometimes, and you just gotta take it like that. And I don't, I don't take it personally unless it's an actual death threat. <laughs> Did you get many of those? Oh, the odd one. No, because <laughs> uh, before you this evening, I sort of tweeted out this afternoon. So I didn't got any questions for Tim Fan. You yeah. started replying to them. It was, yeah, uh, it was uh, very impressive. There was one particular uh, question that I wanted to ask you from yeah. Martin Horsfield. Yeah. He says, does Tim remember the shenanigans on his trip to London with the Runshaw College Government and Politics class? Yeah. But my question, my reply to that, and I'm not sure what his response was, was it 987 or 988, because we did it two years running. Okay. Um, and uh, the thing is, in 988, I'd just, I'd just been chucked. I was well miserable. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I don't remember very much. But do you know John Thompson, who was in Cold Feet? Absolutely. So he, he went the to our, Award Yeah, Peter. well, he went to our sixth form. And he, he was, I think he was on the first of those and not the second. But his best mate was also called Tim. Um, he and I had a, um, had a, had a, a top time somewhere down, uh, down Brick Lane. And, we'd ne- you know, we'd never been out of Lancashire before. Yeah. Um, so it was a marvellous, marvellous time. And he kind of cheered me up because I was utterly miserable. So, so what were the shenanigans? Huh? I don't know. I don't know what he meant, actually. Uh, maybe I've just sort of blanked that out. Really. <laughs> so but, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I imagine he was getting very drunk when we were 17. I imagine that's what it was. And probably throwing up in a bin or something. <laughs> I don't know. Stance. Standard. Standard. What I remember, what I particularly remember about this, and I, need to, I think I need some regression or sort of therapy here, because I probably had a great time, but my particular, so I, you know, my, uh, my syndrome, I'm a massive prefab sprout fan. And um, I, at that week, or the week before that trip to London, I got chucked on the Monday, failed my driving test for the fourth flipping time on the Wednesday, Friday, Cars and Girls comes out. And the, the strap line is, uh, some things hurt more than cars and girls. Not this flipping week, they don't. <laughs> And then I went to London. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you've got, um, obviously, by definition, uh, a, a liberal. One thing that, uh, certainly when I was at school, was um, a big issue was the legalisation of cannabis, and that's something that you're in favour of. I mean, is it something you've tried yourself? I have. And, what, regularly? Or? I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> so this is the point where I say, so the university manifesto and everything. you move on. <laughs> <laughs> but as a kid, sort of... Bit of a blaze. Yeah, I was at university. Just at university. I mean, I, you know, I kind of think I'm I'm quite censorious about drugs because I'm as a liberal, I'm against stuff that robs you of your liberty. Um, and you know, uh, is, is cannabis a gateway drug? I'm not sure, but certainly if you take it, if you if people are able to buy cannabis in a regulated fashion, it won't be a gateway drug because you won't be buying it from the safe place where you could get 
harder stuff. So I, um, I'm not, in many ways, my, my support for a decriminalisation, a regulation, a legalisation of cannabis doesn't necessarily come from me being a kind of anything-goes liberal. It actually comes from a sense of uh, a practical desire to protect people um, from health harm and indeed for it being mixed up with crime and I want to undermine those people who uh, wrongly make a massive amount yeah. of money out of the out of the drugs trade but um, uh, I think all the evidence and we did a review on this if you look at Colorado and other parts of the country other parts of the world where there have been experiments with um, deregulation it's more than an experiment now it's just the norm in many places it has worked it's not increased usage of the drug it has reduced uh, it being a gateway to other drugs it's improved health outcomes, and let's be blunt, it's raised tax revenue that you can spend mm. on good things like health. Mm. So, so what made you cut down then? <laughs> cut down? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, so what, I'm just sort of trying to picture something. Like, what, you just have the occasional thing, or was it like at uni, sort of every night in a hoodie, sat there? <laughs> like, Pretty occasional, pretty occasional. I was relatively safe. And what about anything else? Did you try anything else? No. <laughs> boring, boring existence. Because cannabis is sort of like, I mean, everyone's done cannabis, haven't they? Like, I wonder when we'll get, because Cameron and Osborne, there's always been rumours that they did coke, and you just think, I would love it if you just came out and said, I did do it, and I had a bloody good time. <laughs> I was fucked for like, good ten years, isn't it? Yeah, fucking. <laughs> but cannabis is sort of like, Desensitised now. In terms of public scandal, it wouldn't cost yeah. a politician their job anymore. No, I imagine not. I think. I mean, I think there's. I mean, I mean the most damaging drug in in Britain is alcohol, uh, in terms of its impact on society uh, and health and all the rest of it. And the people who I deal with and support and help in my constituency uh, who have addictions of one kind or another, alcohol is by far the largest. Um, and I don't, I don't want to decriminalise alcohol, by the way. I think the... Or criminalise it, rather. I want us to be in a situation where we, we just understand that um, these things exist. You've got to regulate them in a way which is sensible, which is effective. And I, that's why I think that the evidence stacks up for a form of decriminalisation, legalisation, regularisation, and you, you know, we should, we should tax it and spend the money we raise on the health service. But should we do that with ecstasy and cocaine as well, or not? The, I mean, the, the yes. honest, yeah. the honest answer <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. There's the fucking Tory clubs. The, 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 the honest, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> The, the honest answer is that there is not a massive body of evidence for us to look at. So we looked at cannabis because there are plenty of examples around the world where you could look at case studies of okay. legalisation. There are not enough uh, for us to do that, and that's a cop-out politician answer. Sounds like there might be a few case studies in tonight, actually. I mean, one thing that sets you apart from other politicians, or maybe maybe not so much these days because um, politicians are, are slightly different, but is your love of music, and you mentioned Prefab Sprout and the Smiths earlier. Yeah. Um, you've also recently had to review for an online, um, the REM Club, the Richard and, uh, Rachel and Martin's Music Club, isn't it? Album Club, yeah. It's fantastic uh, Twitter feed. Yeah. Um, you reviewed NWA straight out of Compton. I have. <laughs> I have. <laughs> So the idea of this is that you listen to an album you never listened to before yeah. and then write an article about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how did you find it? Well, it comes out on Saturday, Sunday, so I want to completely, you know, uh, sp spike it in advance. But uh, the idea is you pick an album, a classic album, that you kind of should have listened to. Yeah. Um, and it came out 88, I think, straight out of Compton. And I was, that was my first year at university. Um, and so I kind of spent the first third of the article explaining why it is I hadn't listened to it. And you can't listen to everything. I think um, there is a sense in which, you know, I, uh, I guess 
I've always been a little bit self-conscious about being a wannabe. And I'd, got, I'd gone to university in 1988. I'd never met people who were privately educated before. And there were quite, basically a load of posh kids into NWA. And I thought, well, they don't, they're not speaking to anything about... You know nothing about the stuff they're talking about. Maybe the coke. seemed to be... A, yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe all the drugs. But, um, uh, but I think... So I kind of just reacted against it. Um, but, you know, I, 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 was, I was into De La Soul and stuff like that, but I was always more of a, a self-defined sort of indie kid. I was from the northwest of England. Um, uh, you know, so obviously the Smiths and Stone Roses and uh, Joy Division and all that kind of thing. Um, I was in a band that were uh, written off or written up. I was very proud of it as a fourth-rate New Order. Um, and uh, actually the worst things you could be a fourth-rate version of and I love the Cocteau Twins and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so maybe I just didn't have enough head, headspace for NWA. I think it's a good album. It's a good album. And obviously I'd heard quite a lot of it before. Um, uh, but... Um, uh, not all the way through. I mean, the reality is, I, I, I listened to it in the car first time um, uh, uh, between uh, refugee camps in northern Greece um, when we were out there. And I, you know, so um, if you want to kind of, you know, I, I don't care how bleak how bleak Compton was, <laughs> you know, Doctor Doctor Dre had it easy. I can tell you. <laughs> Uh, uh, you, you've got to listen to it around the constituency a few times. You've got to have that sort of... Well, the only thing is, so I've got it on my phone now, and I occasionally put sh- it on shuffle, and you kind of you go in from you know from cars and girls to heaven knows I'm miserable now to f the police. Oh, kids, <laughs> close your ears, kids. <laughs> it just, I would love to be, imagine living in your constituency. Going, I think Tim Farron just drove by, <laughs> listening to <laughs> NWA. <laughs> Sure, I could smell weed. I think he's <laughs> <laughs> the most badass of me that's, that's what we aim to be. <laughs> um, right. Well, let's uh, take some questions from the audience on the house. Like, so we'll bring um, uh, a roving mic round, courtesy of uh, Timothy, and if people indicate clearly, um, yes, I'll tell you what. Let's do a few down the front. I'll take this lady first, and if people give their names, I'll take the mic round. Cheers, Tim. Thank you very much. If you let us know your name and your question, please. Thanks. Hi, Matt. Hello. Um, my name's Sarah. And question one to Matt, very quickly. Are you wearing Nottingham Forest cufflinks? Woo! I, I am, no, yeah. Oh, nice. Oh. Very good. That is cool, isn't it? Yeah, well, no, it's very good. the end, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Tim, um, very quickly, I wanted to say I've been a Labour supporter all my life, and it's very refreshing to hear Lib Dems have a bit of a joke, because I feel like Labour right now is not having a lot of laughs at itself <laughs> um, so quick question for you quite light hearted um, if you had to live through your 20s again in a two bed flat in central London with a leader of a major political party of the UK from the last two elections who would it be? Who would it be? <laughs> obviously, obviously Nick Clegg obviously but in somebody else um, let me think that gives me options of Cameron Gordon Brown um, it gives me uh, <laughs> Sam Salmon. I once had a curry with salmon. It's all right. Um, <laughs> uh, so the Clegster, Milliband. Uh, oh well, I would, obviously I'm going to say Nick. But if I can't have one of my uh, my own side, I, you know, I, I kind of quite like Ed Milliband. So it'd be it'd be Ed. Yeah. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Lend him some of your CDs. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Hello, mate. Uh, William. Hi, William. In view of the devastation that they caused to your MPs in the South West, <laughs> why, why, why are you not? up in arms about the Tory election bus scandal? So, um, Question. 
I, first of all, you don't want to sound like a sour loser. Um, uh, and secondly, it's a matter for the police. I think there's a sense in which if the Tories But do you said fuck the police, right? I did. Uh, I, <laughs> that, was, that was Dr. Dre, who is obviously a, he's obviously a very... Uh, He's a very keen supporter of the Liberal Democrats, <laughs> but um, I, I hear. Um, easy A, I'm not so sure. Um, but, uh, 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 but um, uh, you know, an ice cubes, you know, UKIP. But, um, but, uh, but I, um, I, I kind of, uh, I think, I think, do I get, there is a centre where if the Tories get done for the, the, the bus scandal, a bit like, you know, you know, Al Capone got done for tax evasion, didn't he? Rather than murdering loads of people. Um, and, what are you uh, saying the yeah, Tories have been up? So, uh, so here's the equivalent, here we go. So they, the, what the Tories did was they used the rules to basically buy the election, but they didn't break the rules, by and large. And it may be, it may be, and the police will decide, the Electoral Commission decide, and it's not for me to, to comment, it may be that at the fringes they actually managed to break, actually break the rules rather than just the spirit of them. Um, of course, it could be a massive story. I mean, post-referendum, we could be looking at, if, if let's say, half of these MPs under investigation get disqualified, massive if, then the Tory government lose their majority by the autumn, and that's a, that's a big story to keep everybody talking about politics over the summer. But there's, there's a perception, isn't there, that all parties have been up to this, and that's why the Liberal Democrats and Labour haven't really kicked up a fuss. Yeah, may, I mean, maybe so, and you could, you know, there are the, the expenses limit is there, and people spend up to it, but the, what, what you're allowed to do is spend a much larger amount um, in a constituency, so long as it's not um, badged as the constituency. So David Cameron, as the leader of the Tory party, can write as many letters as he likes to people in Twickenham, so long as he doesn't mention the name of the Tory candidate and, you know, and outspend the, the, the opposition and, and, and win as a consequence of all that. Um, I think that's wrong. I think one of the things that we did not manage to do when we were in coalition was to deal with party finances. It's what, I mean, actually, in the last year, although, you know, Labour's trade union money cost us, you know, brilliant MPs like Simon Hughes, we nevertheless worked very, very hard to try and stop the Labour Party being screwed over by the trade union bill because we think that uh, when all said and done, you've got to tackle all kinds of big money in politics, not just one half of it. OK, excellent question. Uh, I'll just take the chap in the middle there while I've got the microphone. If you just pass that backwards. All right, thank you. Hi, Tim. It's been really nice to hear you speak, so uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and my question is... I think your idea of going through uh, appealing to grassroots and localism is really good. But in the age of Trumps, Corbyns and Johnsons, do you, are you ever tempted to do something bigger to appeal to a more national scale? So I should call for rebuilding the Hadrian's Wall, something like that in that case, <laughs> or uh, something like that, I don't know. Um, I think, I mean, just to go back to the Charlie Kennedy advice, just be yourself. I mean, uh, you know, it, Boris is being Boris. Um, in, in one sense, actually, during the referendum, it's the first time he's not been Boris, because I think he actually made a calculation mm. what would do me most good. I've no idea, but I don't, I, I, my sense is that's the case. Um, and the minute you start behaving like a politician, then you lose the, um, you know, the right to be kind of taken seriously and to be thought of as authentic. Um, and I wonder whether when Trump inevitably has to trim his sails in the run-up to the November election in the States, and that might do him harm. Um, I kind of hope that's the case. But um, you know, there's no point in trying to be anybody other than yourself, you know, because you won't be any good at it. But you're not tempted, sort of, to go, like, a bit batshit and do something really crazy just yeah. to sort of get... Well, 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 any, any, any sort of recommendations? What should I do? Just, like, just spark up on the floor of the commons. Just with a chicken. Just with yeah. a chicken, yeah, yeah. Fair point. Okay. <laughs> We've got anyone from this section that would like to ask a question. Oh, there's a gentleman at the back, actually, that I think... Uh, 
Well, that's what's going on. What's your favourite curry? What's well, my favourite curry? The NCC anymore. What, what are you, one you pay for, Lambert. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you a serious question? Which is, what drives you? What's your narrative? Um, a chauffeur. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't have a chauffeur. Uh, I do not have a chauffeur. Um, uh, I think um, I, a lot of stuff makes me cross. Uh, I kind of want to make a difference. Um, I think the thing that always motivates me is when winning an election leads to an outcome. Um, I, uh, and I think it's lovely to be able to share that with people as well. I, I, kind of, I was walking the door with my kids about well, a year or so ago. Uh, not far from our house, we bumped into a couple and their daughter and we all got talking to each other. And it turned out later on that the, the woman had been talking to my 14-year-old daughter and, and she told me this later on. She said, uh, that lady said um, that you'd rehouse them. They said, you should be very proud of your daddy uh, because your daddy rehoused me and my, my, my husband and my daughter. Um, and I, and I said, look, if you think about it, love, um, you know, you deliver leaflets in our little estate. So we won our council seat. So we won the council, so we built a 1,000 council houses. That's how we rehoused our family. So, sweetheart, you should be proud of yourself. And I think it, when you can realise that taking part in politics, working hard in an election, and getting over the line and winning can make that kind of difference to people's lives, that keeps me going. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So anyone in this section like to ask a question? Uh, yes, the gentleman there with the glasses and the beard. Hello. Hello. Hiya. Um, well, Tim, I, I, cl- I ask this as a man who considers himself a bit of a classical liberal. Okay. Um, do you consider yourself to be kind of taking the mantle from people like John Locke, John Stuart Mill, and all the rest of them? Do you really believe in the freedom of the individual? And if so, why is it that your party never really talks about that? Simply, simply frame yourself in the context of Conservative and Labour, and you, you seem far more interested in protecting the individual from themselves than actually letting them free. You never really, in my opinion, you never really actually go for yeah. that real, proper liberalism. Well, I think John Stuart Mill um, was a kind of important turning point in liberalism um, because he took liberalism onto the point where we understood that it's not just the absence of restraint that makes you free, it's being enabled to make choices. So it's all right, very, very well saying that, you know, uh, being free to vote... Uh, being having freedom of speech, um, being free to use whatever substance you might like to use, all that kind of stuff makes you free. But actually, saying that you have a right to a home when you can't afford one, saying you have a right to uh, achieve as much as anybody else in society, when we all know the fact is that if you come from a well-off family and you can afford uh, to be sent to a private school and then go to a better university and all the rest of it and be part of an old boys' network as a consequence of all that, you've got more freedom, you've got more liberty. And so a social liberal, as opposed to a classical liberal, understands that there's a balance. It's about having the right to do things, but it's also being enabled to do things. I think a lot of the... Um, and it's why I think, you know, so I'm not a liberal in the Margaret Thatcher turn, in the sense. I mean, she is a... She has, you know, there's elements of liberalism about Margaret Thatcher's politics, but what she didn't understand, which I think, you know, social British social liberals do understand, is there's no point in saying people have freedoms if you don't actually enable them to make use of them. <coughs> Excellent. Is there anyone on the balcony who would like to ask a question? And shout if you would. Hello. Hello. Hiya. Hi. Um, I just want to ask. Uh, What's your name? Alex. Hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. Um, since the election, it's the Tories have kind of made a push to occupy some of the ground that Labour have now left in the centre. Mm-hmm. Um, 
have you got a grand plan to kind of convince disillusioned like moderates like me and maybe like Matt as well? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, first of all... So just, I, just for, so that everyone yeah, yeah. heard, um, have you got a plan to sort of Occupy land grab? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, I think Sentiment. that we, as I said earlier on, I think it's a major thing for us to say, look, Britain needs a progressive centre-left party that is serious about the economy, serious about how you govern, and serious about providing the... I think the majority of people in this country who do not want a Conservative government with a real alternative that's electable. Um, I don't buy the Tory land grab for the centre at all. If, if Ian Duncan Smith calls you out because you are too right-wing and trying to disadvantage the, the disabled and poor by, uh, in order to help the rich, you are not a one-nation Tory. Um, uh, and... Um, so yeah, but I think you know, but in a sense, so I, we can say those sort of things at a national level. We can say, look, we we will be that moderate, centre-left, progressive force that Britain desperately needs. Um, uh, uh, but frankly, we've got to win some elections to prove that we can deliver. Uh, well, Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, first, uh, ladies and gentlemen, please give a massive round of applause for the staff from Avalon and the St James's Theatre. Make it possible. Thank you. Um, Uh, before we say uh, goodbye to Tim, uh, the next show here is on the 29th of June. Uh, the guest for that will be announced shortly. There's also a one-off special at the Leicester Square Theatre on Saturday the 18th of June, uh, where I'll be doing a special with Alan Johnson, Ooh. putting the Remain side, and Dr Liam Fox putting the lead. Hey. Um, so tickets to that have almost gone, but if you go to the Leicester Square website, there's still some left. That's Saturday the 18th of June, then we're back here on the 29th. And we have some very, very special guests to announce for, well, for the 29th and for later in the year that I can't quite reveal yet, but they are superb. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, before we leave, firstly, thank you all. This has been by far one of the best audiences we've had here, so thank you, newcomers, oldcomers, just superb. Yeah. Thank you all. It's been a genuinely wonderful audience. Uh, enjoy the rest of the referendum. But please, give a massive, massive thank you to one of the best guests we've ever had here, Tim Farron. There you go, Tim Farron, leader of the Liberal Democrats. And as I said at the end there, um, we're doing a one-off show. So the 29th of June uh, show at the St James Theatre is sold out, but there are still tickets for a one-off EU referendum bumper special extravaganza on Saturday the 18th of June at the Leicester Square Theatre, featuring both sides of the referendum debate. It would just be days before Britain goes to the polls. So as well as having a laugh about the referendum, I'll be joined by two of the biggest names in it, Alan Johnson, putting the case for Remain, and Dr Liam Fox, who's wide tipped to be in the next cabinet after the referendum putting the case uh, for leave so it'll be a superb night and you can get your tickets on the Leicester Square Theatre website as always thank you for downloading these um, well I've got some very exciting guests to announce for later in the year um, but I'll see you soon cheers When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.